right. I am here with Kristen Gisa. Thank you so much, Kristen, for coming on and doing this remote call with me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. We're here. We had a little technical difficulties, but you know, I don't know. Mercury may not be in retrograde anymore, but it it feels like it might be. I feel like it. I feel like Mercury in retrograde is a constant thing. I, I, I feel too. like I don't know yeah. when it's not in retrograde. I just like to blame everything on it in general. I agree. I think it's a good thing. <laughs> I'd rather not know when it is because then I can, you know, then yes. I think, oh, it's Mercury in, Mercury in retrograde. But anyways, alas, here we are. Um, so Kristen, tell me about yourself. Tell me about your how you got started and just what you're doing now and, and take me down the the path. Well, I got started on my journey in a really strange way. I went to school to be a speechwriter and very quickly learned. I mean, I saw it as a challenge when I was going through college, like, oh, I can, I have the skill and I can write for other people and this is what I'm going to pursue. And then my senior year of college, we were the, there were two of us that were in our senior uh, level speech classes because no one wants to take public speaking. And there were two of us in the class and we had a final exam. And the teacher said to us, the professor said to us, listen, this is your topic, gay rights. You're going to go out there and give a brimstone and fire speech, like a back of the train caboose speech in the old days when your candidate would come in, they would make a speech, they would um, detail for, uh, build up the audience, build up the crowd, get everyone riled, and then the train pulls out. So we were writing that kind of speech 40 minutes long and get get everyone riled. And uh, the day of the speech, she had invited all of the undergraduate students to come get extra credit because none of them wanted to be in speech class in the first place. And they were all epically failing. And right before we went on, she said, as is common in speech writing, your topic has changed. Now you're going to support the opposite. So you're going to be not, you're going to be against gay rights. And I saw it as a challenge and hunkered down and wrote for my now ultra conservative candidate and prepared myself to go out there and give this presentation. And I said to her, you're going to tell the students, right, that these aren't our personal beliefs. And she said, oh, of course. So I get in there, I'm starting my presentation and this student walks in and sits in the front row. And I just continued on. And afterwards, the student came up to me and said, you know what? I didn't have my mind made up but you made some good points. I agree with you. And then walked away. And I was like, no, I I didn't mean any of that. And I just made you a bigot. Like, I don't know. Oh my gosh. And I had this complete internal crisis of words are so powerful. Duh. You can't just go out in the world and assign those words to someone that you don't believe in because their words are going to make up people's minds. And so I realized, oh, I can't go to DC and just work for anybody. And at the time, as is now, maybe the time it was ultra conservative and that was not my personal beliefs. Those don't remain my personal beliefs. And so I thought, you know what? I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so basically when you become a speechwriter, you're kind of like, a sociopath because you are taught how to talk to people to get them to agree with you, vote for you, put money in your campaign pocket. You learn all of these really gross things that you're going to employ as a speechwriter for your candidates to go into a hotel room and talk people into donations. And at the time it wasn't, Instagram didn't exist. Facebook didn't exist. TED Talks didn't exist. So for me to deploy the skill wasn't going to work. 
And so I started doing, it was either be a used car salesperson or uh, become a waitress. I felt I didn't know what to do with the skill. I was going to talk you into buying nachos and fries with your order or air conditioning for your car. I didn't know what this skill was going to become. And I took a job waiting tables at the Cleveland Improv. And it was in a room. And we had A-list comics coming through, Dave Chappelle and uh, Jerry Seinfeld. And one by one, the comics started saying to me, hey, you're really good at this, at, at coordinating us. You should be a publicist. And I didn't know what that meant. And so that put me on what was a default career track because I didn't even know about PR. And so that set me off on my journey. And then one led to the next. I went from publicist to talent manager to producer only to come back around full circle and write Unverified um, recently, my first novel uh, in my 40s. So it was just, it's amazing how all of these skills now serve me on this new journey. And thank goodness I had that big, you know, off-road journey of all of these other skills that I still use. That's still my daytime hustle. That's still what I do every day. Um, but the, it, it serves my heart hustle of writing now on its own level in a new way. I love that. And how do you think comedy specifically prepared you for, you know, if we're looking at through the comedic lens and, and specifically working in improv, how do you think that specifically prepared you for well, where you are now? The interesting thing is, so first of all, I suck at improv. I can get up in front of a room and tell any sort of a story and think on my feet. But if you ask me, like, I'm going to give you two words and make a joke out of it, it will be crickets, you know? And so, but this last year, I did stand up really for the first time. And and it felt like getting off a plane in Paris and realizing once I got there that I could speak French. Because it was like a skill. I've always been a storyteller. I've always been able to lead the room and lead a meeting. But I never, you never know if you have what it takes to be a comic until you actually get up in front of a room of people and try it. And for most people, again, like speech in college, people would hate it. I actually now I'm like, how can I do this again? All of these abilities to look at opportunities and say, here's the through line. That has served me so well in standing up in front of a room and saying, there's the joke. So I think it, it it makes you more interesting and you can't be funny if you're not interesting above all mm. else. Yes, that's so true. I would so agree with that. Yeah. I I mean, there are, of course, some really dumb people that will make you laugh. But for the most part, the comedians that I – I mean, like you can watch Jackass. Not that I'm saying that Johnny Knoxville's done. Like, no hate. Love it. I will laugh at it too. But, you know, there are ways that you can make other people laugh that don't involve putting a toy truck up your bum. In order for the job, you know, <laughs> right? And there is something God, very, <laughs> there is something God very human about <laughs> that physical humor. Watching somebody fall or trip, yes. I don't know why. I, I don't like that about myself that I find that funny, but yes, I do. I do. But you're too. right; it does take. I think it takes a little bit of living a life to a little bit of pain, a little bit of suffering, all that good gritty stuff to, oh, to make yeah. someone very funny. That's why. When I used to go to these open mics with these guys like in their 20s and I had started, you know, after I had children, I felt like I had so much more to – I had so much a well of resources to draw from other than like I got drunk last night and my girlfriend broke up with me, you know, blah, all this other stuff that I won't mention on my podcast. So I think I think you're right. Like, Yeah, it's interesting though. I will say this. My stand-up that I did – 
um, I, I started doing open mic nights and all of these younger men in their twenties, again, no hate. They got up and I agree with you. It was like masturbation jokes and jokes about, um, you know, their peanut, you know, it was, it was, and yet the first joke that I kind of build into on when I do stand up is actually a masturbation joke. So I feel uh, like I really, can I hear it? <laughs> I really can't hate on that. But again, I think it's like anything in design you can look at something and go, that's pretty, or that is low rent. And you can look at something, you know, a hamburger versus a filet mignon and, and all of that. It's it's all in how you construct it to make it more interesting. And I think that that, I agree with you, that for you to start out at the right time for you, when you have something interesting to say, that is the beginning of any greatness you will have in your life. You know, I took a a comedy class out here and they spent a lot of time telling us exactly how to write a joke and that every joke is, you know, set up line, laugh, set up line, laugh. And yet every comic that I love, it is way beyond set up line, laugh. It is a much more involved build and story and construction and a callback when you least expect it. That's intelligent to me. And that's what I love. I'll still laugh all day long at the other stuff too. Cause I, it's like music. I appreciate so many different kinds, but I relish in a Wanda Sykes or someone who can build the narrative over the time of their stand up. Right. And you mentioned that you were a storyteller. And I think of myself as a storyteller than mm -hmm. I do a comedian sometimes because Absolutely. it's just natural and, and easier for me to sort of lead people through that. And I think the way I see things is funny. So it's sort of like kind of walking someone through how I see something or I guess, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you worked with some like kind of big names in Cleveland. Do you have any like stories or anything you could share that like defining moments or... Yeah. I mean, I once inadvertently became a, a drug dealer without knowing, you know, going to pick up <laughs> someone's cocaine and not knowing until I'd done it. Like, oh, snap, there's an eight ball in this bag. Oh, and gosh. I for sure should not be walking around with this. You know, I mean, it was like, oh, okay. You know, I basically when you're born in Ohio, I was never a Girl Scout, but I was born in Ohio. So I'm kind of a Girl Scout. Like I will, if you are lost, I will come and find you. If we made a plan, we're going to stick to it. You know, so I had no idea that that was the little task that I was being sent out on. Um, But you know, the thing is that that's so interesting to me about comics is that they're often way darker than what they portray on stage. And so it was really interesting, you know, spending time with someone who feels really darker and more verbose. And you're like seeing them at 6am as you're trying to drive them to do a morning talk show. And they are not at all like the person that you saw on stage the night before. But I think that pain or that angst oftentimes makes them so funny. You know, they're, they're in the seat of observer more than participants sometimes. So they're observing what's happening and then dialing that back up on stage to tell you and that's what we're all laughing at. So that to me was really shocking. But it is unlike any other time. When you spend time with comics and you are really in the seat of everyone laughing and joking, it feels like an addiction that you you would just want over and over again because the stories and the exchange and 
you know, I mean, I think back to all the things that we did during that time and how all of that would so not fly now of like comics, you know, saying, hey, let's go to the strip club afterwards and go in the VIP room. And it's just like, what, what were we doing? But it was all male comics. And I think that doesn't make enough room for female comics to be on the stage because it felt like such a boys club. And I'm so happy that's to see that changing now, you know, and that you can be a comic without even having to try and get booked at the Funny Bone in Omaha, because now there's all these other platforms for you to be funny on and then build towards other outcomes, which I think is really exciting. I think that's exciting. I think social media is a big, you know, change that a bit. And that's sort of why I became more, um, you know, vocal on social media, because I just could not stand being in those places where comedy happens. Like it literally crushed my soul. <laughs> so yes, nice. I know. And the it, darkness and the the just, you know, the alcohol and the, yes. the just the darkness, you know, it's just Yeah. The uh I agree with you. That darkness that that is there is crazy. And not only that, there's, you know, you're staying in a comedy club uh, condo. And it's like, don't sit down, girl, because you do not know what has happened on that sofa <laughs> oh, 85 right. times over. You know, I mean, like, that's not going to get cleaned with a with a, uh, a Lysol spray. Okay, so it just doesn't allow someone who's trying to do it in very like a business build upon it to really hit their stride with it in those environments sometimes. Mm hmm. And do you have tips for people that might be in the industry or or sort of struggling with getting out of it, like on how to build a business or how to make it more lucrative or, you know, something that they can really, you know, build upon and grow? Yeah. I mean, I think the key word is business. And I think that that was, that's what I learned over this last year of, of transitioning into author was that you have to apply such an expanded vocabulary. You know, you, you can't just work on your tight two minutes and then build to three minutes to build to five to get to the next level. Because it, especially in a day and age where comedians at top levels are all vying for their Netflix special, they are now going out on the road in ways that they have not before. Um, in Los Angeles, it's like every night it's stacked. 10 top headliners are testing material. So if you're an up and coming comedian, how do you even get on that stage? You know, it's, it's so hard. So I think if, if you sharpen your sword in other ways, if you look at uh, applications like how to build your social media, how to build your YouTube channel, how to create an exchange on Instagram, Instagram Live, excuse me, how to utilize something like Naka. You know, you can build a, a program for yourself and go through a platform like Naka and play 25 college student unions and make more money and never have set foot onto a comedy club stage. You know, I think if you look at it less about what's your ego payoff, you know, and more about what's your economic payoff, then you start to st break forward in new ways and bigger strides because you're more invested and I'm building something that's beyond me. And some people fall into the pitfall of this is all about me. And so I just want the stage in that way. And I think they get a little bit more jammed up and slowed down. Yeah, I could see that. Ego is a is can be a huge blocker yeah. in so many things, right? Um and so in your early when like when you started your career, 
and now you kind of have founded your, not kind of, you have founded your own agency. What do you think those skills were that you were nurturing to, you know, eventually arrive to where you are today? Like what are the skills that you had innately? And then maybe what are the skills that you had to really work on? Yeah. I mean, I think when I started out in the business working for other people doing PR, um, I realized right away there's so many facets like any industry. You know, if you're a restaurant owner, are you going to be a cafe, a crepery, a hamburger joint? You know, what's your thing? And um, when I transitioned and started my own PR agency, it was clear that I wanted to focus on more national campaigns. And that then led me to a group of people, whether they were you know, someone who was on the Oprah Winfrey show when we were representing them, it's it sort of allowed us to zero in on personalities who are in the lifestyle space that can proliferate into brands. So nothing to do with comedy at all, nothing to do with me as a storyteller other than applying the ability of story and layers to build someone's brand. And so I spent a long time building, I always say, if you are a chef and you want to be a can of soup, I'm your gal. Because we can look at you and all the facets of your brand. What should you be doing on television? What should your brand identity look like? What should your book look like? What should it be about? You know, all of those are ways that I was using my creative lens uh, for other people. And about two years ago is when I thought, wait a minute, I built the stadium and put people in the seats and found the horses that are on the track. What if I were a horse? What if I were also the talent who utilized my skills going back all the way back to when I was a writer to give that a go? And it just cracked something open in me that I had never thought I would pursue for myself. And it bravery feels like uh, one brave moment begets another because, you know, first you do the book and then you're like, well, if I'm not going to get a publisher, I'll publish it. And then we're going to get it out there. And okay, now we've got 500, you know, you know, reviews or whatever it is. And now we keep going and then, okay, let's try stand up. You know, it's just once you challenge yourself and really start to discover the areas of yourself that have always been there that want to come forth, they get louder and louder and louder. You know, um, I think a lot of people are afraid of this thought of what if I try something and I'm not good at it? Forget that. That's who cares? Like you can try 10 things. Failure should never be an obstacle. I think the bigger challenge is what if you do something and you really are good at it and you really do like it? That's a bigger problem because now you have to figure out, well, heck, I have to change everything about what I'm doing in order to make room for this thing that is undeniable in me. And that takes some real chutzpah, I feel like, to keep that going. And I think People should want to find that part of themselves, not hide from it. I absolutely love that. I I so love what you just said. Um, I had that experience when I was starting to do stand up. I had I I got my master's degree in spiritual psychology, and in that program, in our second year, we had to do something that we'd always wanted to do since we were a child, and mine was comedy. And as soon as I realized that, I was equal parts terrified and equal parts thrilled because I knew it was so huge for my soul and for my evolution even that I just broke into tears because I was like, now I know <laughs> and I can't I can't not do it. You know what I mean? Like I absolutely have to do it. And I tell people all the time, like, 
it doesn't mean that you have to find that for yourself, but I do think people have sort of given up hobbies yes. and given up doing things that just maybe just bring them joy or maybe, you know, ignite their creativity. And I have this bad, I think it's a great habit, but also a bad habit of doing something and just saying yes. Like I played in my daughter's parent hockey game the other night and I had so <laughs> much fun playing hockey that I was like, what if I took a class? Right. And then it was like, what if I was on a team? And so now I have this like, you know, dilemma where I'm like, how am I going to go to hockey lessons? And I just have so many things in myself that I want to cultivate. And I wish that if I could give a gift to somebody or anybody, it would be that because I do feel like it enriches our lives and it it does, you know, it makes everything better. Yeah. I think that we have lost our sense of curiosity and discovery. And those two things are essential. I think they're the biggest spice of life. You know, it's like, when you are just a little bit afraid of that, you know, like the night before you go on a trip and you can't sleep and it's like, oh my gosh, we're going to get there. And I don't speak that language. And will we find our way? And this, there's something to that precipice element that makes you straighten up your shoulders and pay more attention and be more aware. And all of that ultimately leads you to greater bravery. And I think your natural curiosity is is so essential to any, any success that you're going to have in life. And people tamp that down over and over and over again. It's like, this is just good enough. And I just, I don't know, just good enough is not the zip code that I'm trying to live yeah, in. Yeah. I love that. That's, I am the same. And I think you're right. Like it's like that heightened sense of when you step into something new or you step into a new hobby or a new, even just way of being, you change your perspective. I think you have that, like like you said, that kind of straighter posture, that heightened sense of, I don't know, I think maybe the Zen masters call it beginner's mind, that sort yes. of like curiosity that you, and to think that you're going to be good at something right off the bat is crazy. Like Correct. nobody is. Correct. I mean, you see the athletes and all these people that are great at things. You don't see the hours and hours and hours of practice that they're put in behind the scenes. Absolutely. You know, anybody, comics, anybody that's good at anything. They've failed a million times. Absolutely. And if we only did things that we knew we were going to be good at, I don't know, then we would miss out on so much. It's not like you're going to be the world's best hockey player. That's right. not your, I mean, I don't want to insult you. I don't know <laughs> you. You might be. I don't want to sell you short, but you know what I mean? It's like sometimes you do things just for the joy of doing them, you know, and that's great, you know, because what you see in yourself when you do it and what you get out of it it can be the precursor to the next thing. And who knows how you will apply this in all the other things that you do. You know, the stamina that it gives you or new strength or new, I mean, it, it, it just has a payoff or maybe you'll never know until 15 years from now. And then it will be like, oh, thank goodness I learned how to play hockey because right. now this, you know, you <laughs> absolutely. Know. life absolutely. is not a straight line. I don't know. People think life is a straight line. It is absolutely not. It's not. Yeah, I totally agree. So tell me about your book and how you came up with the idea. Tell me about how you did you have any, you know, setbacks when you were writing it? And how did you get over that? I, I can't imagine I'm writing a TV script right now. And it's hard to write because to get it done, you have to write. So tell us what your what your process was through that. Well, first of all, I had the worst idea ever. They're the dumbest. And I don't say that lightly because I grew up in a house where you never put down people or things. You know, it's always like there's always a reason or a rhyme or whatever. 
And, um, but it's been really hard to sell reality television. And that's a space that I predominantly work in putting people on design shows, putting people in cooking shows, whatever it is. And I had this crazy idea that the truth is, is if you look at a format like Duck Dynasty, it's a format, or if you look at a format like Real Housewives, um, it works as a reality show. But if you transition it into a scripted show, it also works as a little known show called Desperate Housewives by Mark Mm. Cherry, you know, like, so it's like similar concepts of women uh, in a neighborhood or in a, you know, economic level that are going to become friends or by virtue of their place in life, whatever it is, you can see that it can work. And so a lot of really good ideas can expand and contract to apply to different mediums. And because it's been so hard to sell reality television, because there's so many platforms and so many things not working, I thought, I wonder if I take some of my ideas that haven't moved down the chain fast enough for me, and I think about them in a scripted format, what would they look like? And I came up for the seed of the idea that is unverified. And I got a meeting and went in to pitch this guy and a producer. And um, when I got there, he said, how'd you get this meeting, which is code for who do you know, which is code for am I going to give you 50 seconds or five minutes or whatever. And so I told him and he said, okay, give it to me. And he was on his phone looking down at his screen as I started to pitch him just no time for me had already ruled me out. And I started in and he looked up and he said, holy crap, I'm going to buy this. And I was like, oh, I am leveling up. I want to buy a Tesla. Like, I don't know what's happening next, (laughs) but I think this is what success smells like. So we are, this is not a drill. And, but because I am a talent manager, as the conversation progressed, I asked him very benignly, how will we work together? And he said, I'm sorry, who the, are you? Uh, with the F-bomb. And I don't know if you curse on your show, but you know, he, he uh, said, who the fuck are you? Right. And I said, Oh, and I did what as a female executive, we do so often and have had to do for so long. I entered that room as a swan, the fullest version of myself ready for the pitch, you know, hyped up on Kanye on my ride there, ready to go. And then I origamied myself into a tiny little crane to make sure this man knew that he had the bigger posture in the room. And I backpedaled and tried to look smaller and smaller. And he just said, you know what? You're not a writer. And then proceeded to kind of rant and, you know, said, who are you? And I'm like, well, listen, I think you forgot one word, three letters. I'm not a writer yet. And at which point I thought he was literally going to light his desk on fire because how dare you go further. I'm so glad you said that. I left the meeting and cried in my car because I'm still a human being and called my friend and said, I think I ruined your friendship with this person. She's like, he was a douchebag anyways. I'm like, amen, sister. And she set up another meeting and I went into that meeting and they were more pleasant, but they said a similar thing. You're not a writer. And um, I thought, well, if I write it, they can't say that. So I wrote it and I thought initially I would write it as a screenplay because that was part of the goal. And I envisioned it as a TV series. So when you read the book, it actually 
has a lot of character development because I saw these as characters on television. They need to have more legs in order to be television characters. I think I see it now more as a rom-com, but you know, at the time I was looking at it as a real mechanism to go drop on the table and say, make this. And um, so I thought initially if maybe I write it as a screenplay, but the truth is, is then I'm just back in those rooms with those same men, you know, saying you're unproven, you know, even though they're not saying that to everyone, I just knew, I just knew. And so I thought, well, if I write it as a book, I at least have something that can either go in publishing or be optioned in another way. So that's the path that I, I chose to go. And, and in a weird way, I feel like the universe, I always say she's my wing woman. And I feel like the whole time she wanted me to write a book. And I just was too blind to that uh, vision that she had. And in a weird way, the universe, when you really allow it to be the wind in your sails, like we're all boats. And if you're a lot of boats just stay in the dry docks talking about what they want to do or what they could do. And the universe really wants you to put your boat on the water and she will rise up to raise the water level and to give you the wind if you are willing to have faith in what you can do together. So I feel like all along that was her goal because I I feel like it just kind of backed me in smartly into that space so that way I would have something that could really be proven that I could show. And so now we have the book. And did I have setback? Oh, yes. I mean, I wrote the book fast, I think comparatively, I wrote it in about three months. But I just got a rejection number 70, like a week ago from an agent who said no, thank you. Um, I'm like, did you Google to see that we already have 200 reviews on Amazon and Goodreads? Mm -hmm. I guess not, you know, I guess not. Yeah. but that's okay. You know, you'll eventually, eventually, maybe you'll see it. I, I hope so. Um, but you know, I, I learned a long time ago that you can outwork every no. People cannot tell me no, because I will outwork it and outsmart it every time. And that is really, I, I learned the lesson of when I first started to get no's on the book, it stopped me down a little bit. And then I thought, oh my gosh, you have never once accepted a no on behalf of your clients. Just yesterday, I got told no from a TV product. And I'm like, absolutely, this is not the bottom line. Like this client will be on television, whether it's you or someone. I just don't accept no. Why would I accept it for me? Like, what is that about? You know, so now I have to remind myself of the things that I would not allow to happen to my clients. Why would I put up with them for me? You know, so it is, I feel like I'm in the mirror. Like I'll give them pep talks on a Zoom meeting and I'm like, you got that. And now I'm like in the mirror, like some weirdo, like you're smart enough. <laughs> right. <got> <laughs> yes. Uh, who was that? Simon somebody. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> You were good enough. You were smart enough. Smart enough. Yeah. And gosh, gosh darn, darn it, it, people, people like people you. Like you. <laughs> yes. I love it. Yeah. So I that's love me. It. That's me on my ring camera. If anyone's seen me like talking to myself in my driveway, that's what I'm muttering. You, you're in the chase, girl. You got it. But I feel like if you're not going to be your own hype woman, I don't know who else is showing up for the job. You got to be the first in line for that. Yep. You have to be. I agree. And how did this all you're you're so wise. Like I feel like a lot of people never come to this point. So how do you think 
how, where did you learn all this? Like, where did, you know, where did that, where does that guts, uh, what is it? Hutzpah. What's the word? Yeah. Where does that come from? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I mean, I've always trusted my gut and I think a lot of people struggle with that. Um, I've been better at trusting my gut on behalf of other people than myself. And I think that for so long, I mean, obviously I had a mother who told me it, you know, I, I remember once when I was young, I remember two very specific things from the Janet Gisa School of Learning. I love it. Let's hear it. The first one was I constantly wanted to perform for her in some way. And she'd be like, you know what, Kristen, I saw you do it the first time. I'm not your audience. I'm your mother. I have a life. Okay. Like, like you can play on your own and we can check in later. Cause I was exhausting and as, as to a parent. And I think it gave me this sense of do it for you. Don't do it for the approval of other people. Wow. I love Do that. it for you. Like when you decide this is good enough, I'll come back and see it again. It isn't about my reaction. And the byproduct of that was to do it for me. And mm. that really gave me a sense of look inside first and, and listen to that first, which was really uh, powerful. Um, and then, you know, there was this real sense of her always saying to me when I was younger, I would say, do you ever know things about other people? I think the first time I said this to her was when I was like seven, we were in the car and they said, do you ever know things about other people or something that no one has told you, but you feel it from them and you don't know why you know that. And then when you talk to them, you knew something about them before they told you. And my mom was like, whoa, okay, what? <laughs> what? And then without missing a beat, she was like, you know what? That's your intuition and you should listen to it always. And whenever anyone tries to tell you not to you ignore them. And she would parrot that to me routinely. And now that is what I listen to above all else. And um, I think the combination of really honing into my gut and learning how my intuition could be my biggest asset is what has served me so well all these years. And it gets jammed up. I mean, I think what I can see about myself professionally, like is very different. Like, listen, I am 44 and single. Clearly I am failing on one side of this coin, but the other side is shiny and bright, you know? Like, so we all have our paths where it's like, ooh, what? But I think that when you really can sit in the seat of what is my intuition telling me and what do I feel about what I'm trying to do here, that combination is like the one-two punch. Yeah. Ooh, chills. I feel that. That's awesome. I absolutely love <laughs> oh, that. I mean, this is going down a different path than I thought it would, but I, lo I love it. And I feel like <laughs> it's so important because it gets so, uh, especially with social media, I think it, it can just get just caught up in the mix and you don't know what's from you and what's yours and what's not and what's coming from other people. So I absolutely agree with that and just love that. So thank you for sharing. Of course. I mean, I think, you know, we are already comparison shoppers as women. It's like, is this lipstick better than that? And which is the better price? That is the death of us in the realm of social media. Because when you are comparing your moment of where you are in your story to someone else's, your middle to their beginning or end, I mean, it's just like, it's a recipe for disaster. And I have to remind myself of that all the time. Because if I, and you can't sit, that's the other thing. Like success is rising through all the fails. And I 
feel that so much. I got told no 70 times. If I had listened to any of those, the book would not be here. The next book would not be coming. The screenplay would not be being written. I mean, you have to be almost untethered and untamed in your desire when everyone says she's crazy. You just go, that's right. I am. Because I'm the one who has to keep this candle lit. I'm the one person vigil that shows up every day to light the candle at the poster and put the flowers at the base of this dream that at any minute could be the bicyclist that got hit on the side of the road. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. that is a dream. It's just waiting to get taken out by the bus. That's everyone's dream. There's a million in the office that says you're not a writer. That's correct. It is like, it is waiting for you to be that thing that you ride along on the side of the freeway where it's like, ooh, something passed, someone passed away there. That's every dream. It's so Mm. easy for it to just die before it even lives because of so many factors. And you have to be the one to light the candle every day and be like, I know it's crazy that I'm here and I know I'm never going to meet Paul McCartney, but I'm here every day to be at this vigil, to make this happen. That is, I'm, I'm going to be a comic. I'm going to be an author. I'm going to be a chef. Like you have to be the one to light the candle every day and then do the work to make it happen, you know? And I'm not talking about the glamorous work. Like I'm talking like I one time had to reach into someone's toilet to pull out their Blackberry, to take it to them, to get it fit. But you're like, these are the things that you've done in your life along the way that teach you how to be the assistant, that teach you then how to move up the ladder, that teach you how to be the boss, that teach you how to get the meeting. You know, like you're not just perfecting one skill if you want to be a comic. You have to perfect a lot of them. And anyone that says, you know what, I'm just not good at that side of it, uh, you better get good at it. Because all of you have to fire on all cylinders in order for you to be successful. Yes, I completely agree with that. And it's not so fun to do the things that we're not good at. At least that's what I found. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's the pits. Right. It's the pits. But if you can (laughs) find a way to make it, you know, I try to find a way to make, I don't know, even if it's just turning on music that I like while I'm doing that task that I hate, I feel like, or rewarding myself after. Yes, um, exactly. I try to do those things. But I also, something that struck me when you were talking about you know, like lighting the candle for your dream. And I wonder if you feel similar, but I do feel like we're not given a dream to have it not come true in some form. Right. So, you know, maybe I want a Netflix special. Okay. But that maybe that's not going to happen, but something similar could come to fruition. And it's like, I don't think our creator or universe or whatever you want to call it gives us those dreams to not, and then not give us the potential to meet them in some way. Correct. Absolutely. So I think, you know, if you're listening and you're like, well, I, you know, I have this crazy dream. It's like, it's not crazy. You don't, I, you know, I don't have that dream. You know, I don't have your dream. You don't have my dream. So it's like, I do think that we're given these specific things and, you know, with a mixture of talents and also setbacks that sort of all take us to this point of um, becoming quote unquote successful or realizing our greatest potential. So I just want to yeah, out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think also people sometimes get confused between success and goals. 
you know, so it's like your goal is to work towards the Netflix special, but your success might come in other ways as you go to meet that goal. And so when I wrote the book, I had uh, a woman say to me, what does success look like to you? Because if you think you're going to be a New York Times bestseller, you're not going to be. And that was just like matter of fact. And I said, listen, I said, let me break it down to you this way. I understand what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. It is very unlikely to reach that level of success. That is the top of the mountain. I am still going to climb it one step at a time and celebrate every inch that I go forward as me getting towards like that's the goal is the top of the mountain in that bestseller. But I'm going to succeed with every step I take towards that goal. So I hope to get to the top of what that is. But I also am going to celebrate a lot of successes by just getting on the mountain, clipping in and climbing. So if your goal is to be Taylor Swift in that next, then every time you sing, strive and write a song and perform, you are succeeding because you are inching closer to your goal. Whether or not you get there, that doesn't matter as much. It matters more that you actually clipped in and climbed over and over and over again. That's right. success. I love that. And I also think people get, um, and, and myself as well, we get caught up in the form, you know, like, oh, it has to be this way. And the man has to look like this. And I, you know, my career has to look like this. And I think what people really want are feelings or the essence of something. So I think the more we can focus on that and less on the form, the more likely it is to be given to us. 100%. I totally agree. I totally agree. Right? I mean, we're just solving all the world's problems. Right I now, so. know. <laughs> <laughs> On this right? dope ass podcast. I love right? it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So let, going with our positiveness and our, our you know, uh, go-getter attitude, what do you, what's your favorite part of your, like the career that you built for yourself now? Like what is your, what are you really proud of and what do you love about your current job? I mean, I think, first of all, I struggle with celebrating all the things that I have done because I'm so busy doing them that I don't always honor what it is that I did. You know, it's like I spent so many years, I mean, I was behind the scenes of 75 Oprah tapings with clients and all of these other things that were amazing. And I really didn't stop to metabolize that in a way. So I'm trying to do that more. So when I reflect back now on all the things that I've done, it gives me a much greater sense of satisfaction than I think it did in the moment. And I think that that's something as women, we're especially, we not that men don't do it too, but women especially, we are in the, we're not going to be good enough until this happens. And we don't allow ourselves the moments getting there. So I'm trying to be in that seat a, a little bit more. But to be honest, I think the thing that I just go give yourself a little bit of credit is that I am still hanging in that, you know, I have people say to me regularly, like, I don't know how you do it. I mean, people are so mean in your business or they say the most horrible things or you get told no all the time or people are so rude. You know I mean? Like, I can't believe that guy said that to you in that way. And it's like, none of that matters because I am so focused on what I am doing and that you can't, you just can't beat me down in that sense, because I know that everything hinges upon me getting back up. 
And um, so I'm proud of that mentality because otherwise I would not be talking to you right now. I wouldn't have done that stand up. I wouldn't have written that book. I wouldn't have, you know, had that TV show go and fail or what, you know, I mean, it would, there's just so many reasons that I would have turned back on the journey. I would have started to walk back down the hill. And I'm glad that I'm 20 years in and I'm still like, no, the next peak, that's where we're going. So I'm pr- that's what I'm proudest of, I think. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And do you think, so, and someone that works in an industry where you hear no all the time, do you think it, it gets less stingy as time goes on or does it always sort of hit you in the gut? Because I feel like I don't get, I'm not in the position where I get a ton of rejection. And so when I do, it's like, oh, that doesn't feel good. Yeah. Does it get better? <laughs> I mean, it always sucks to be told no. Yeah. But then there's two things that I think lessen it is one is there are a lot of people who will tell you no, who don't really have the ability to tell you yes. They couldn't, they had to give you a no because five people had to tell them that they agree with their no. So there's always another way to get a yes. There's always another way to go forward. So that lessens it. Um, you can outwork every single no. So that lessens it. And then the third thing and the biggest thing is none of these people who tell you no, know anything about what they're doing. Everyone is just hail marrying it at the buzzer, trying to figure it out as they go along. Everyone, with the exception of maybe the brain surgeon who you better hope is not a hail Mary, you know, the, the ones that really, you know, but for the most part, there is no real mirror ball that tells someone exactly what will work and want, what won't. So when you realize that this person kind of doesn't even know what they're doing anyways, um, it just makes you realize like, hmm, we'll just find a yes somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then my last couple questions have to do with, um, you know, living a dope ass life. And what advice would you give to someone? You have such a big dream and you've made so many things happen. What advice would you give to someone just starting out or who's in the middle or feeling defeated? Um, I feel like you've given some kind of in between, but is there a certain phrase or something? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, networking is everything. So even if you don't know what the next right step is, you probably can plug into an experience or someone else that will reinvigorate you towards your goal. So I have never made it anywhere by getting there by myself. That was a double negative. I don't know what, but I mean, like you don't go there alone. You know what I mean? Like at some point there's always someone else in my boat with me, whether they're hyping me up or whether they're giving me my next great connection in life. This is my biggest takeaway is that you get what you fear, right? So your head is like, I got this. I can be a stand up. I can do this. I got this. But if your solar plexus, your highest vibration is like, I'm not good enough. It's not going to work. I don't know how to do it. I'm going to fail. Guess what? You're going to fail because that vibration is the vibration that pulls towards you your best opportunities. So you need to get yourself right with your vibration and have it shut down your head vibration a bit and like make it the loudest vibration. So you need to walk through life vibrating as I'm going to make that money. I am going to find that next connection. I'm going to meet the people who will take me to my next opportunity and then be aware, head up and receptive to it. So when you sit on a plane, look at who's around you. When you are in a conversation, listen more than you talk to hear what the other person has to say. You would be astounded at how many people you will meet 
when you vibrate at the right frequency of success is in me already, Mm. the people that you will meet that are meant to lift you towards that success. Oh, that's so good. I love that. I absolutely love that. That's so good. I hope everybody heard that. I'm definitely going to pull that out for a soundbite. Oh, I love that. I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay, final question. How do you live your dope-ass life? Oh, gosh. I mean, I feel like I try to be brave enough to listen to my intuition about what to do next. So if it's right, really hard right now, if it's sign up for that comedy camp, if it's, you know, take a break for five minutes, if it, you know, whatever it is, I lead my dope ass life by believing that my intuition is going to guide me at all turns. I love that. And what did you say your mother's name was? Janet Gisa. Janet gave you that. And if your mom wasn't like a Janet, we're giving it to you now. Yes. Listen to your intuition, right? We <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> you have our permission. Kristen, thank you so much. This has been actually just what I needed today. This Amazing. conversation. So yes. And I hope everybody else I know this is gonna be what my listeners need too. So I really, really appreciate you taking your time to come on. Absolutely. Maybe next time I'll be funnier. I feel like I'm no. that this is meant to be a funny podcast. And I was all like, I don't even know, uh, a self-help motivational speaker. You know what over. it is? It's always what it's meant to be, yes. I feel like. True. So True. yes. Amazing. All right. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Dante32.